Okay, well, we're going to start lesson three today from our study on the conscience. It's July 6th, uh, what is it, 16th? See the book once again, and I've uh, already talked about where you can get those. I know a few of you have purchased those books. Uh, and keep me on track, okay? Again, I'm using uh, the book as a basic, basic guideline, a general outline, and it's a good read. So uh, when I get to something that uh, you've been pondering in your efforts to read through the book, then again, as I mentioned last week, don't hesitate to get my attention and stop me because I'll get on a roll here and I may, may not see your eyes or you, if you don't raise your hand, I won't know to to look towards you and get some comments from you. So feel free to do that. And I hope that'll happen this morning. Last week, we talked about the fact that you can damage your conscience. Uh, Just a little bit about last week, we talked about having uh, an insensitive conscience, which leads to some sort of licensing, if you will, in our mind, in our psyche, about things that we do, things that we allow in our life. Then in the opposite of that was people who are oversensitive in their conscience and how that often leads to legalism. Everything becomes a taboo. You know, everything in the mind of some in their extremism, everything becomes something that will send you to hell, okay, or ultimately separate you from from God. And uh, while we should be uh, sensitive, we should not be oversensitive. How do we tell the difference? We learned about going to the Word. And uh, looking at what we hold as a truth, if you will, in our heart and mind in all ways and in every circumstance, comparing that to what the Word of God says. We looked at some examples from Scripture in 1 Timothy 4.2 and in 4.3 we looked at that. <clears throat> we even looked at Jesus' own example where He seems to uh, validate these two extremes, the oversensitive and the insensitive conscience there in Matthew 23.24 as he was addressing uh, the Pharisees, you know, that's that passage that has the eight woes that are pronounced against the Pharisees. And he really comes down on them hard about their legalism and so forth. He talks about straining at a gnat and swallowing at a, ca- a camel. You'll remember that, that language from last week. So it's nothing, nothing new. Uh, and I had a note, but, and I didn't mention it, but it's a reminder to us about how evil can take something good a sensitivity in our life that's right and that's appropriate that should be there and get that off base, take it to an extreme, okay? There's always a balance. I think of that psalm, I can't go right to it, but I know it, where David says, I have set the Lord evenly before me. And I can remember some teaching in that regard from a a good old Greek scholar at New Salem, Dr. Walton Macmillan. He said that word there, Balance uh, are when he says he's been uh, he set the Lord evenly before him. He said that word is balance, and oftentimes evil wants to upset that balance. You might associate it with clarity in your life. What does the word actually say about this issue in my life? Not where my experiences and my desires and my misthinking take it from one extreme to the other, but show me your truth. The first thing it seems like that evil wants to do is to take something that's uh, true in the Word of God and stretch it one way or the other so that it becomes distorted and it becomes out of balance. We know that. We can go all the way back to the garden and see evidence of that, can't we? Where the serpent says, well, not really what God said. Or hath God indeed said, as one translation says. Let's go back and look at that. Nah, that's not what he meant. No, his word can be clear. And that's what we want to do. We want to see it in its clarity. We also talked about the fact that God is the only Lord of conscience as we looked at what our writers call two great principles when we look at conscience. He's the only Lord of conscience, not us. God is the Lord of our conscience. And then we ended up by talking about that you should always obey your conscience. And we had one caveat, didn't we? We had one exception, or as he says, one critical limitation. And I'll read it to you again, just as uh, they give it to us in our book, in our study. He says, If God, the Lord of your conscience, shows you through His Word that your conscience is registering a mistaken moral judgment, and if you believe He wants you to adjust your conscience to better match 
His will, your conscience, must bend to God. So we talk about being willing, you know, being, I guess we could say, humble, being uh, willing to accept the fact that we might need some correction, some redirection in a certain area in our life. Uh, I've had friends in the past, uh, particularly since uh, I've left my former church and come to this church, uh, who are so at odds with me over the change in doctrine, uh, which of course I embrace here in Reformed theology. They're so at odds with that, they, they cannot open up with me. They never ask me anything about my life anymore in, in the church. They never ask me anything about my ministry. They never do because uh, they don't want to go there. They don't want to discuss it. So uh, you have to deal with that from time to time. And I've learned to be what God wants me to be in the moment. And when I run in to folks, you know, and I see them in the grocery store or whatever, and I exchange pleasantries with them, and I'm always interested in about what God is doing in their life. But so many times it won't be reciprocated. It won't, because they don't want to hear it. So we pray that we would never get to the point where we think we know so much about God's Word that we shut down opportunities to grow and to change. Are you afraid of change? Does it upset you? We like stability, don't we? And maybe if we could change that dynamic a little bit and quit thinking about change in our life as something that's going to upset us, and rather think about it as something that's going to complete us, something that's going to bring us closer to the Lord. And we see examples of this throughout the Word of God. And we could look at, we could, you know, Peter comes to mind. How many times did the Lord have to tell him, Peter, arise, kill, and eat. It's okay. This is a change. And I know it's hard for you the way you grew up, and how fastidious you were about keeping all these Jewish dietary laws and staying away from Gentiles and all this. But he says, it's different now. How many times did he have to tell Peter that before it took root to any degree? Three times. Three times. And I say to any degree because later he had to be challenged about it, didn't he? Once again, which tells us these roots run deep. Paul says, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Can you imagine that? That's the fight of the century, isn't it? (laughs) Peter and Paul going at it, so to speak. But that's what he did because it was glaringly obvious. He couldn't let go. We often think about, you know, well, if Jesus were here, if he was, you know, just if I could talk to him and, and just look in his face and be around him, that I would be changed. You know what? Peter was there. Okay, he was there. That was his experience. And what he received by way of change was open up to him an area that you need to move forward in your life here, Peter. From Christ Himself. It just shows us how deep these roots go. And how it's a fine line. It's splitting a hair in being confident in what you think and what you believe. Now granted, we, there's some things we know. We know that Christ died to pay our sin debt, don't we? We know that. We know that salvation is through faith and repentance. We know that. Period. We know that. It's carved in stone. Won't ever change. But there's some things about us that need to change. And I dare say that they will continue to emerge in our life. Can you imagine coming to Christ on a daily basis, pouring out your life to Him and saying, Lord, open up my eyes. Lord, change me for Your sake, not for change's sake, not to please someone else or some denomination or anything, but show me clearly in Your Word and I'll move forward. And we move on that. And oftentimes only later to be shown something else along that same issue, same topic that requires us to change even a little more. Why? Because we never arrive in this life. We don't. We don't. Man, that'd be boring, wouldn't it? If that were the case. Well, Paul is responsible, the Apostle Paul, for a lot of what we have. And of course, through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit giving Paul insight about dealing with churches 
the church at Corinth, other places, but dealing with those churches about relationships, about differing opinions. I mean, can you imagine the upheaval that was going on during Paul's day? And certainly when Christ was here, everything was changing. The law, okay, he came to fulfill, not to abolish, but to fulfill. Can you imagine that dynamic changing for everybody? Now, I say everybody, everybody who's truly wanting to know what is God doing? Where has He been? What's happening in His entire economy? Well, Messiah has come. The price has been paid. Things have changed or things have been completed. They have. They've been fulfilled. But some were still, I don't know. I've lived this way so long. And we know and realize that only, ultimately, only the Holy Spirit of God can change our heart for the sake of God and for the sake of the Scripture. That is, understanding the Scripture and giving us a firm foundation in God's Word. Well, in reading and, and responding to some of the things that Paul was, has given us here, particularly as he addresses the church at Corinth, uh, I ended last week by talking about this verse in 1 Corinthians. We didn't read it. Well, I might have read it, but we didn't get there. 1 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Because this says so much about the heart of the Apostle Paul. Now, go back just for a moment in your mind and look at Paul. Just kind of scan your knowledge, if you will, about the Apostle Paul. Who he was, what he was before his Damascus Road experience, where he came from, oops, where he came from, uh, how fastidious he was uh, about the Jewish law and so forth, the reputation that he had amongst his Jewish friends and the people that he worked and served with. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. You might say he was the up and coming guy. That's who he was. He was distinguishably different. Why? Because he says he was zealous. Okay, He put his convictions, if you will, and Paul had strong convictions. He put his convictions to the test. He acted on what he thought was right. If he thought something was uh, a threat, if you will, against Judaism, uh, he was out to get him. He was the one they gave the warrants to, if you will, to go out and to search people out who were uh, bound to be a hindrance uh, to Judaism and put them in jail to separate families. To do all and he made a name for himself. Remember, Ananias knew who he was. When he was told to minister to Paul, he's like, whoa, uh, you talking about Saul of Tarsus? We know this guy. You might have this one wrong, Lord. <laughs> Can you imagine? Couldn't do it. God told him, he said, no, he's a chosen vessel of mine. How much, uh, how much confidence in God would it take for you to, to accept that from the Lord? That this, this man who's been responsible for so much destruction amongst the early church and the people of God is now going to be a tool in God's hands. That's just dynamic, if you ask me. And we find a man there in Ananias just moving moving on the Word of God because it's what He told Him to do. Long story short, as we consider Paul and who he was, and now by this time, of course, he's suffered for the name of Christ. As he says, he bears in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus. He's continued to do just what he's always done. This is the way God has made and engineered him. He's a doer. Okay, that's what he is. But now, since his heart's been changed... He's doing for a different reason. He's doing for the Messiah and not for Judaism. And listen, in 1 Corinthians 4.4, he says this, after talking about people who judge him and want to hold him accountable, he says, For I know nothing against myself, which says what? He's gone out somewhere and he's sat on a rock, as we say, and he's considered his life over a particular issue, no doubt that he had been accused of, and there were many, there's virtually nothing that a, a minister could be accused of that the Apostle Paul wasn't accused of, whether it's doing what he does for money or doing it for uh, uh, favors from the opposite sex, everything, he was accused of everything. 
And he says, I don't know of anything against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. I don't know anything against myself. Let's let's break this. Can you say that this morning? Have you been through that process? And it's a continual process, is it not? Not just when somebody's holding our feet to the fire or when we're accused or whatever, but in our daily, if you will, presentation of ourselves to the Lord, whether you do that in the morning or at some kind of quiet time or at night when you doze off or whatever, when we contemplate our life, I do it a lot, most every night when I lay my head on my pillow, I go through this, I look at my day, I thank God for the good things, I repent again of anything that He's put His finger on in my life. I know nothing against myself, Paul says. That's a good place to be in, but it's not wholly sufficient. It's not. It's the best we can do. And what else does he say? Yet I am not justified by this. He admits there's a higher plane. Okay? Uh, there's a, there's a different, different or higher, if you will, level of scrutiny, which he doesn't go into great detail about, if at all. He alludes to it in the last phrase of this verse. He says, but he who judges me is the Lord. Are you satisfied with that, Chris? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing, when he says there's nothing that he knows he needs to move on in his life, which says up front, well, first off, you've got to put yourself in that position, don't you? You've got to open up yourself. You've got to bring yourself before God. And I would say, uh, before the Word of God, what he knows about any issue in his life that's under scrutiny or called into question, uh, whether someone else has done it or whether the Holy Spirit has put it on his heart. You know, that happens. That should be our daily experience. He knows of nothing. Nothing that he's obstinate against, nothing that he's refused to yield to, nothing that he's operating outside of the Word of God on. There's nothing, he says. I don't know of anything. But what also he knows is that he's a man. (laughs) Okay, He's flesh. Yes, he possesses the blessed Holy Spirit of God, often filled with the Spirit of God. But he says, I am not justified by this. I'm not justified by my own introspection and evaluation. It's the least I must do. It's the best I can do. But one day, it's all going to be clear. That to me is is amazing to think about. First off, it demands humility on our part, does it not? It absolutely demands it. And we could do, I'm sure, a study on humility just as good as we could do one on the conscience. I don't think it's by coincidence that we look back at the life of Moses and we find those, those verses, what is it, Numbers 11, 12? Somewhere in there where it says that Moses was what? He was the most humble person on the face of the earth. Now, some people take that scripture and say, well, that's proof right there. Moses didn't write that. Okay, (laughs) well, I don't know about that. Holy Spirit wrote it. But for a man to be able to see, if you will, whatever that means, see more of God than any man, it was the man who was the most humble on the face of the earth. This issue about humility is huge. Huge. Because anything less is blinding in our life. Particularly when it comes to self-evaluation. It really limits, really limits what we can do. You know, we never know how God is going to speak to us. Now, always and most clearly through His Word. But yes, He does use other people, does He not? Certainly He does. That's our ministry. 
is to speak the word in love and to speak the truth in love. That's what we do. We're, we're told to get involved in people's lives, to care about one another, to think about their things above our own things. That's what we're to do. People without humility can't do that. Or are you to the point in your life when someone can come to you and say, look, Mike, look, you being your friend here, you need to think about that. <laughs> you need to think about that. Mark, I'll hit you, buddy. But and you and you're so you're so committed to this principle and you're so aware of how God uses other people in the fellowship of God to get our attention that we instantly see that as an act as a as a a love act on the part of God for us. He's taking care of His children. He, in effect, is saying, get out of the road. Okay, I did that yesterday. Get off the deck. Well, my little granddaughter got out of that little pool and was wandering over there. Stop! Warning! He cares about us. It's the exact example that Christ uses. Not the deck and all, but uh, taking care of your kids saying, if you know how to do that as an earthly mother and father, how much more does heavenly father know? So it's sad when we lack in humility, when we lack in the desire for God to speak into our life, if it's going to upset our apple cart a little bit. I'm more impressed with teachers who can say, you know, I really don't know that, <laughs> okay? Or I really don't understand that. I dare say one of the, the most uh, impacting uh, situations in my life when, it, when you talk about uh, transforming from Arminianism to Reformed theology and all that, was the, the people who teach, they can't justify you know, the, the two roads, okay, the two truths, the two parallel truths. They can't, they can justify it in the Word, but they Explain it is what I'm saying, right? Can't do that. Why? Because the Bible doesn't explain it. It just says that's the way it is. That, that God does what He does, you know, by way of election and determination, and yet man is responsible. What we can't deny is that the Bible teaches that. We can't deny that. It's all over the Bible. I told Melissa this morning as we were coming to church, I said, you know, once you open up your heart and you begin to look at God and His sovereignty, once you do that and you're focused upon His sovereignty, then you begin to see even in Scripture, Scriptures that you've read for years and years, you see it that you never saw it before. And, and I said, I'll give you an example because she's been helping me with my my studies here, and, and I said, you know, in, in Matthew 11, when we look at John, the, John the Baptist, and he's, you know, he's questioning things, and he sends emissaries, you know, to Jesus, are you the one? And the Lord answers him, you know, and, and then he talks about three cities. He talks about what are they, Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum, cities in which he preached in. And he preached repentance, it says, in those cities, and yet they did not repent. Now, that's not to say that nobody, no individual ever repented, but the city as a whole did not repent, you know, much like Nineveh repented. They didn't do that. And then he says this. Have you ever noticed this? And he uses two other cities. He speaks of Tyre, and he, and he speaks of Sodom, and he says, you know, if what had been preached to you, you three cities recently, had been preached to those two cities, what does he say? they would have repented. But it wasn't preached to them and they didn't repent. How do, you, how do you rectify that? How do you do that? You can't deny that that's what the Bible says, but do you see God's sovereignty in that? And I'll admit for years, I read right through that. I read right over that. See? And I use that just as an example to remind us that God wants to get our attention, particularly when it comes to issues in His Word. 
and wants us to be clear. And we must be humble. We must be willing to open up our heart and mind to the truth of God's Word. Paul knew that on a personal level. He knew that on dealing with these folks in the church. Wherever his accusers were, if it was from Corinth or whatever. In fact, I marked there. I wanted to read 1 Corinthians 4.4 just to bring that in full context. I want to read 1 through 5 there. I should have already been turned to it, but I'm not. Chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians where he says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now there it is. This is the purpose. He still sees himself as a steward, a servant, regarding the mysteries of God, and we know those are revealed in His Word. Moreover, he says, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful, that there be a continual pursuit, if you will, that there be a willingness to share what you know. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. Paul's not being arrogant there, if I understand this right. That's not what he's saying. He's saying just what we said earlier. There's a higher court. Okay, that's not his ultimate concern. It's his concern to a degree. He wants to be clear in the way he lives his life and what he teaches, but that's not the final word. In fact, he says, I do not even judge myself for I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. And then in verse 5, he says, therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Why would Paul end with that admonition? Why would he think that would be necessary to do? Why do you think? What impact should that have on the hearers then and on us today? We can get comfortable in our own evaluation of ourselves. Well said, yeah. We're not focused on what's ultimately going to be the judgment, then we can, we can give ourselves some slack, but the true judgment will come from God, and that's the standard that we need to evaluate. That's true, and I'll add one thing. That, that attitude, that realization, brings a greater clarity to the process because it exposes, it shine, the Word shines its eternal light on that which is not consistent with it. Do you follow that? If that's what we're filled with, if that's what we desire with a humble heart, that's what will be revealed to us. We'll not see that if we allow it to be clouded with the things of this world. We won't. And when we focus upon self, that is a worldly, fleshly thing. It is. So Paul... And the Holy Spirit, I should say, I should give ultimate recognition to Him through the Apostle Paul, is doing that very thing here. That's what he's doing. Now, I go to 1 Corinthians, I go back actually, chapter 3, and we kind of see some of the foundation that was laid for Paul. Let's see, 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 23 is where I wanted to go. And the subtopic in my study Bible here says avoid, avoid worldly wisdom. So that's the context of what we're looking at. Listen, he says, let no one deceive himself. So there you go. That's the result of a lack of humility, uh, a desire, a selfish desire on our part as we pursue God's truth. He says, if anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or let me say, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Now Paul's 
talking with some background in mind here, I'm sure, regarding the church at Corinth. He's giving them what he thinks they need, and the Holy Spirit is certainly all over that, using that. And he talks about worldly wisdom, man's wisdom as being what? What does he call it? It's foolish. It's foolish. It's not that... If that's all it is, it's foolish. It's not that we don't have an opinion, that we can't speak forth the truth, but it must always be founded on the truth of God's Word. Always. Without any exception. As we said earlier, a lack of humility, a desire for self-promotion, all these things cloud that. They cloud it. And at our very best, he says, look, it's, it's foolishness. He catches the wise in their own craftiness. You know, when we get involved, so involved in making our point, making it known, it turns into some sort of self-justification. And before it's over, our true colors are revealed. As he would say, we're caught in our own craftiness. So we want to make sure that our motives are pure, that our desire for truth And our commitment to act upon that truth once it's revealed to us is a reality in our life. So I go back and I share that from chapter 3 that he, of course, shares with us through the Holy Spirit. And we're back to 2 Corinthians. These these go together here. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll see these some of these verses again, but if it's a verse that even mentions the conscience, we'll see it again in that list of, of 30 that we'll be looking at. So when we get to them, we, we either deal with them in context there or maybe just refresh them again as we go through each of those 30 verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, <clears throat> Paul says, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. Paul, once again, is defending himself, if you will, regarding his motivations about his ministry and those who are with him. He speaks in the first part of that verse, he says, he refers to boasting. Now this is not, this, the word can be used in a positive or negative way. Okay, Here he's talking, of course, in a positive way. It could be better rendered confidence. Our confidence is this. And he's talking about godly confidence. What we know God has approved in our attitude, in our words, in the way that we've been doing our ministry. He speaks of the testimony of his conscience. And I went back and did a little word study on about four words here out of this verse for our sakes today. He's talking about testimony. It's a Greek word that deals, it, it points to something that's, that's evident. Okay? And it does uh, make reference along the lines of like legal testimony and so forth, where you have like a witness. Okay? Something that's credible. Something that's been pulled forth. It speaks of a consistency. It's something that, that characterizes a situation or a person. It's not an exception. It's what you would think about when you think about this situation or this individual in terms of credibility. Their testimony, it's true. And he says our boasting is this, that the testimony of our conscience, and again we'll see that word, it's that word synodesis that we'll see throughout our 30 uh, scripture examples here. But words that are associated with that by way of describing it is like the word, it's a co-perception. You know, and I thought about that. What, what does that mean, a co-perception used to describe conscience? Because it places in that evaluation you know, our relationship to God. In other words, we're evaluating our conscience just like Paul said he did earlier in the Scriptures, according to God's dictates, according to the Word of God. A co-perception, if you will. We talk about the Scriptures that talk about, we we have the mind of Christ. 
You know, I grew up in a church where that would be like blasphemy to say that. But the Word of God says that we have that. If we're walking in the Spirit, if we're filled with His Holy Spirit, if we're filled with His Word, we can think like Christ. And I say, thank God. I'm not talking certainly about in every situation we have that potential. But there's too much of the flesh left in us to do it all the time, every day, 100%. Right? We know that. But what a wonderful potential we have in knowing the truth and in doing the truth. The testimony of our conscience, he says, that we conducted ourselves. He's talking about his walk. He often uses that word. His manner of life. Looking at the life. Once again, seeing something that's concrete, not the exception. When I think about individuals in this church that some of you I've only known since I've been here five plus years, because of your consistency, I know how you think about some things. I know what your commitments are. I know how dependable you are in certain situations. Okay, It's what he's talking about. Our, the way we conduct our lives that's been manifested to you. Conducted our lives in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. This word sincerity, he's talking about, as it says, a clearness, a purity. Something only the Holy Spirit can illuminate, I would think. Our motives, if you will. Why we do what we do. Being sincere about it. Knowing that that's what makes us tick. That's where we're going you know, when Christians, when Christians lose the desire or the willingness, if you will, to give a fellow Christian the benefit of a doubt over an issue, what's left? Accusation. That's all that's left. If we're unwilling in love because of this, because we know a person's life and character and what they're about... We're un- all of a sudden, we're unwilling to give them the benefit of a doubt. And that's a judgment. That's a premature judgment on our part. And so much difficulty, so much division comes out of all of that. We conduct ourselves, he says, with sincerity. And he adds, not, gives the, the contrast, not with fleshly wisdom. Sarkikos, he says, pertaining to the flesh, that which pertains to the flesh, that which it says is animalistic or unregenerated. That's not the way that we act. That's not our motivation, he says. That's not what characterizes us. All of that in this verse, his testimony, his conscience, his sincerity, and his lack of Fleshliness, not in fleshly wisdom. He says, but what? By the grace of God. By God's grace and more abundantly toward you. Not only that it's there, but it's been demonstrated to you. You're beneficiaries of that. You have received that. You know that about us. So he shares that again with the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians one twelve, And we know and we've learned that conscience must have a proper foundation. It must be built upon the truth. And this kind of closes out this first chapter in the book. Always built upon the truth. And we've dug into it this morning. That must be our desire. We must approach that with absolute humility. Conscience must be listened to and obeyed. We know that. But the conscience must be informed. The conscience must be grounded in the truth. Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Peter's words, we ought to obey God rather than men. And we're reminded that we're not the Lord of our conscience. Christ is the Lord of our conscience. He's responsible for developing it as we yield ourselves to him. And let us be like Paul where we say, Lord, I don't have anything. I can't I haven't found anything against myself. <coughs> and I know that people that there are people in this fellowship who do this very thing. They examine their heart and life. You know how I know that? Because after a certain interchange or exchange with someone sometimes or 
discussing an issue and people giving uh, their take on it, their thoughts on it. These same folks, and I'm one of them, sometimes you come back and you say, you know, my heart wasn't right about that. I, I, I wasn't focused on the right thing. There was too much of the flesh in my answer, in my evaluation. There was too much emotion. I began thinking about myself rather than the impact on my brothers and sisters in Christ. I began thinking about that. And I admit that for a moment. And I've heard people do that and say that. And as I say, I've been there myself from time to time. We have to be willing to do that. We have to be willing at some point to understand that this, this whole process in the New Testament church is not about us. I grew up thinking and was taught that it was about us. That the church existed for me. That I might be a Christian who could grow and reflect Christ. Well, there's some truth in that. But it's always about God. We are the bride of Christ. We're told how to love one another, how to care for one another, how to give one another, as I said, the benefit of a doubt, how to do that self-examination time and time again to make sure that God can use us, that our words can be fruitful, and that they reflect a desire for the things of God, not for us. How important is that? And then when we do that, what does He do? What does He do? He responds to us. He blesses us. But when we get the cart before the horse, as we say, we miss the boat. We really do. I couldn't help but think about the words of Martin Luther as we continue to think about conscience. And it's his most, I guess, most famous words when he's being accused and he's having to give an account of his life and his works and the things that he's written and they want him to recant. And you know the verbiage. He says, I will not and cannot recant anything for to go against conscience is what? It is neither right nor safe. He knew that back then. And his conscience had been what? It had been pruned and evaluated against the Word of God. Absolutely. I mean, look at all that he was brought up with to believe, but yet the Word of God arrested his heart, and he saw the grace of God. And he knew that he knew that he knew, and that it stood upon the infallible Word of God. So he says, when my conscience is cemented on those things, it is neither right nor safe to go against it. That's exactly what we're talking about here, is it not? exactly what we're talking about. So, chapter 1 is history. Our conscience is a gift from God. Our conscience must be developed. It is a sin to go against conscience. It's a sin to force somebody to go against their conscience. The conscience is that precious. We sin against our brothers in Christ when we encourage them to do that very thing. We do. Somewhere in the midst of all that, somewhere in our efforts to find God's truth, to be true to ourselves when it comes to what God has revealed to us, what our conscience, which is best we know, is rightly informed. We stay with our conscience and then we trust God to work it out from there. Because we don't have anything else. We don't have anything else in His Word. And we go back and we look at these issues. We talk about issues of conscience versus issues of preference. And those will come out even more later on. We'll have some specific examples to look at and to entertain you know, things that come out of the church that most all churches deal with. We'll look at that. But we continue on, and we've got a few moments. We've got, what, five or six minutes. So we'll go into chapter 2 just a little bit. I don't know how fast this is going to go because I thought I would do chapter 1 in one lesson and it took three lessons. So uh, uh, we'll just see how it goes. There's no, no timetable or anything here. And in case you're wondering, I use a, I use a Hebrew-Greek key study Bible uh, from uh, Dr. Spiro Zodiates, if you've ever heard of him. Had the privilege of meeting him one time. He spoke at New Salem one Sunday morning, and I, Melissa and I entertained him and his wife at our home. Uh, I felt like I was at the judgment all day long. But anyway. 
<laughs> he was there. And I've got one of his, uh, he had the, the study Bible, and I've got that. And I use that as a resource. So when I give you um, something that I've looked up in the Greek or whatever, or Hebrew, it's certain words, and he, he picks the words that most likely you would want to know and look at that affect, you know, they bring clarity, I should say, to that particular verse. So that's what I use from time to time. Okay. We go back in chapter 2. Remember I said in the book, he doesn't really even get into defining conscience until we get to chapter 2. But we went ahead and did that, and we looked at that word from the Greek, synodices, which occurs 30 times in the New Testament. 30 times in the New Testament. He adds that there's no parallel. Group or group of words for conscience in the Hebrew Old Testament. However, you see the concept there. It's just not called conscience. The words conscience, he says, does not appear in Romans 14. And that's one of our focal passages. Pastor's preaching on it right now. But he says, synodices in the Greek does not appear there, but the concept is there. Um, and it's one of the foundational chapters. It appears twice in the book of Acts. It appears 20 times total in Paul's letters. It appears five times in Hebrews and three times in 1 Peter. That's where we find it. And oftentimes, it's just with any word study, you learn more about it by not just looking at the word itself, but by looking at the other words that are used with it. As we would say, we look at it in context to get a very picture about how the word is being used there. And we'll do that as we go through each of these verses. So, he starts that list, of course, in, in uh, New Testament order. And he starts with Acts 23.1. Acts chapter 23, verse 1. Uh, so let's look at that, and we should have time to do that. And that will probably bring us, bring us to a close here for our time, our study today. Acts 23.1, Paul's talking about, he says, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived before God in all good conscience up to this day. So where is Paul? Where is he right now? <coughs> He's on trial, and the council is who? Who's the council? That's the Sanhedrin. He's before the Sanhedrin, and he's giving his account. He's been arrested, you know, if you follow him through Acts and uh, giving his account. Once they found out that he was a Roman citizen, everybody started panicking because they had placed him in bonds. It was against the law in Rome. He didn't do that to Roman citizens without accusation. Um, they got really nervous about the way they had treated Paul. And you remember, Paul kind of had an attitude about it. You know, in certain places, they did they treated him bad, and they came to, you know, when they found out what they'd done, they wanted him to kind of go out the back door, you know, and hit the road. And he said, "Oh no, no." You've treated us this way. Let them come and get us and take us out the front door. Which Paul might have struggled with a little pride too, okay? We don't know. So anyway, that's what's happening here. Looking intently at the counsel, Paul said, and this is his declaration, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. What period in Paul's life do you think he's talking about there? That his conscience has not failed him. He's had a good conscience toward God up to this day. What's he talking about? Okay. I'm sorry? His entire life? Yeah, and there's some... Uh, that's, uh, that's what I want to highlight on. He's, certainly what you say is true. Uh, we know that Paul had a, a huge adjustment in his conscience on the road to Damascus, right? We know that that happened. But was Paul any less, you know... Uh, in tune with his conscience back when he was just a jealous zoo, uh, jealous, zealous Jew. Jealous zoo. Sorry. That's terrible. Darby, take that out, okay? <laughs> a zealous Jew. Was he? Now, he didn't have the same capacity because obviously he's not filled with the Spirit. He's going to be fleshly. He's going to be following worldly pursuits. He's more interested probably in being the up-and-coming Jewish guy, okay? But it, at least in his mind, his conscience had not failed him. He was doing what he was supposed to be doing zealously because that's what he thought God wanted him to do. And he was wrong. So wrong, right? 
Oh, he was wrong. He, 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 when he finds out how wrong he was, he's, he talks about, oh my God, he said, I, I persecuted the church of Christ. I'm, no, I'm not even worthy to be an apostle, he says. I'm just nothing. He was so wrong, so blinded. And we have that same potential over any issue. All you got to do is just mix it with a little flesh, mix it with a little, you know, a lack of humility as we've discussed. All of these things that point to what we want rather than what God has revealed in His Word and we can come up with the same agenda. But, he says, before God and men, a good conscience up to this day. That word is the good is the word agathos, which means of benefit or speaks of good things or something that's well-pleasing. You know people named Agatha? Okay, that's where it comes from. Agathos. And once again, our word conscience in there. He can say honestly that he faithfully matched his actions to his understanding of, of God's moral judgment, God's moral standing. That's what he did. That was his practice. And though in his humanity, in his flesh, it might oftentimes have been a flawed practice, right? Because he says, hey, I'm not by this acquitted, okay? God will judge me one day. But the best you and I can do is say, based on what I know about God's Word, based upon the purity of my heart and pursuit, I have nothing against anyone. I want to know the truth. I'm not guilty in this thing. There's nothing on my heart in life. So the issue would be, can we say that over any particular issue that comes before us in our Christian life? I'm glad to say to you today that when we pursue God's will above our own will, God will make His will known. He will do that. And only the Holy Spirit can provide that confidence that unity, that direction in our life that we crave, that we long for. We want that security, don't we? God has promised that if we'll set our affections, if we'll set our sights upon Him. As it says in Hebrews, looking unto Him who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's pray together.